Now I've got to say up front, I am not a big fan of 80 for Brady. I had a lukewarm response to it. I think the humor is really corny. And, and sometimes it's corny in a way I can appreciate. I smile and sometimes it's just corny. I, and I think, oh, come on, give me a break, you know? And it, it just sort of stretches things that way. So I'm not wild about the film whatsoever, but I'll say this, and it will sound like a backhanded compliment, but it's really not meant that way. 80 for Brady really is cornball humor, but you know what? It is easy to watch. And again, that's the backhanded compliment ostensibly, but you know what? I see a lot of movies that are not easy to watch. This one's easy to watch, and yes, I enjoyed it. Put my arm behind my back, twist it, and say, yeah, 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 I enjoyed it. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're gonna talk about 80 for Brady, and Magic Mike's Last Dance. And we'll start with 80 for Brady. So Mike, I want to start off by saying when I went in to see this movie, the theater was full of older women. And when I went into the theater to see the Magic Mike movie, I was following a large group of older women in. I'm thinking to myself, all right, is it for 80 for Brady or Magic Mike? And sure enough, it was for Magic Mike. So both of these movies know their audience. We're going to start with 80 for Brady. Mike, what was it like when you saw it? Was the theater full of, of older women or was it more of a mix? I didn't have a noteworthy experience in that respect. <laughs> but, you know, jesting aside on that, what's interesting is, you know, movies always think in terms of target demographic. And there is an audience for these films. Admittedly, I'm not that audience. And, and yet, you know, I try to take that into account. So, and there is the viewing experience. If I'd been surrounded by the audience that Marie saw it with, would I have responded differently or more favorably to the film? And that's a debatable point. But I like to think that I would stay with my own response. I would stick to my own intuitions, my own basic response to it, and to make note of how the people around me are. Because I've always been one where I go to the movies sometimes. And, you know, I'll sit there watching something stone-faced and people are laughing around me and I think, okay, is, am I just a grouch or what? So I'm not, af I'm not afraid or reluctant to be the guy in the theater, maybe just the guy in the theater surrounded by the women that Marie described. But anyway, it's sort of a moot point for me. I just was watching them as movies. So can I start to talk about it as a movie? Sure. All right, I will then. Go for it. <laughs> I'll go for it. So the, the title is 80 for Brady. And it's worth noting that it's based on, well, I love the expression inspired by true events or real life events. So it's inspired by, you know, a group of older women who were real fans. They were New England Patriots fans and they were all the other side of 80. And in fact, the, the actual group is called Over 84 Brady. And in that respect, it's very much an, not only an authorized film, but one of the producers is Tom Brady, right? So, you know, he, and he's in the film. He plays himself very convincingly, I'll say right up front. But in terms of the numbers here, if, if we're talking demographics, Let's roll the numbers. Let's talk the numbers here. So it, it is going to draw an older audience. I'll be polite and say a mature audience, seasoned moviegoers of a certain age. And gender-wise, yes, it's appealing to, to women more than men. So when I saw the film, it was mostly women in the audience. Yeah, uh, it wasn't a huge crowd. It was mostly women in the audience. And we were all well-behaved, but I assume they enjoyed the, the film. What would they enjoy? Well, we like seeing ourselves on screen, right? But Here's what I like seeing on screen. Now, I've got to say up front, I am not a big fan of 80 for Brady. I had a lukewarm response to it. I think the humor is really corny. And, and sometimes it's corny in a way I can appreciate. I smile and sometimes it's just corny. I, and I think, oh, come on, give me a break, you know, and it, it just sort of stretches things that way. So I'm not wild about the film whatsoever, but I'll say this, and it will sound like a backhanded compliment, but it's really not meant that way. 80 for Brady really is cornball humor, but you know what? It is easy to watch. 
And again, that's the backhanded compliment ostensibly. But you know what? I see a lot of movies that are not easy to watch. This one's easy to watch. And yes, I enjoyed it. Put my arm behind my back, twist it and say, yeah, 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 I enjoyed it. What did I enjoy? Well, how could you not enjoy the casting here? It's all about the cast. And here's where we roll the numbers. So when I give each player's name, we have so many favorable associations with these actresses, but I've got to give the relevant numbers. And the film does too. Within the film, they talk about the fact that they are of a certain age. So here are the ages. Lily Tomlin is 83. Jane Fonda is 85. Rita Moreno is 91. She wins, right? And then Sally Field is only 76. And in fact, one of the funny things in the film is that you know, they all talk about being over 80 and she, her character always pipes up. I'm not 80. She says, you know, I'm only 75 <laughs> or six, whatever she says is 75. I think she says, and I think you go for it. And so of these, I mean, I, I admire all of these actresses and years ago interviewed Sally Field. And I just so much admire how she redeemed her career, having been known for those iconic and really silly TV roles, how she became a serious actress and how she's done really great work, you know, in Lincoln and other films. She's really, really proven herself as an actress over the years and has the Oscars to prove it. And we like her. We really like her. So for all these actresses, I really like them. And, and if I go off on a tangent for each one, I could mention so many roles that they've been in where I just absolutely adore the work they've done. Now, I got to say, in all honesty, though, in this film, they're just sort of coasting. They're coasting in an agreeable way, but it's almost like you get together with old friends. And whether you've appeared in movies together or not is, is a moot point, actually. It's just that you, these are all people you, you, you know, grew up with essentially on screen and they grew up with each other. They, they've had parallel careers. So what is it like? It's like getting together in the living room and have, having something to drink and a, and a bowl of popcorn and, and just like a, a goofy screenplay and just enjoying each other's company. That's what I'm getting at. These actresses enjoy each other's company. So whether they actually have a parallel career in terms of, you know, sharing in the same movies doesn't matter really. It's just simply they are of a certain generation. They can appreciate each other. And it's simply fun just to watch them. They're all still, yes, they're all still vital. And Rita Moreno looks great. I mean, I, I should look so great at 91, right? They're all really vigorous and they know how to work the material. Yes, it's corny material. It's really feeble at times, but they know how to work it for whatever it's worth. And the pleasure of their company. Let me just close with that. The pleasure of their company. So that's why it's easy to watch. And I'll make no great claims for it beyond that. Well, I have three sisters. We all went to see it together. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why the theater was absolutely every seat filled. Because I think people went with friends. And it's for the very reason you described, Mike. You want to spend time with these actresses because you've seen them in several things. And they all look fabulous. Like you said, Rita Moreno in her 90s. Wow, I would like to look like that now in my 50s. Everybody looks amazing. At the end of the movie, you see a picture of the four women the movie was inspired by, and they just look like little old ladies, white-haired old ladies. They're not glamorous. They don't have the fabulous clothes and wigs that you see Jane Fonda wearing, which makes the movie more fun to watch. Mostly because, like you said, we know them from other things. We've seen Sally Field and stuff. We've seen her, you know, hawking Boniva for your bones. We've seen Rita Moreno even recently in the remake of West Side Story. Thank you, West Side Story. <laughs> and of course, if you, you know, everybody knows Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda from Nine to Five, but also from Grace and Frankie, which is a show about two older women who become friends after their husbands end up in a relationship together. And that show on Netflix has a huge following. And one of the pleasures of watching that is it's not about two old ladies who have given up and their lives are over and they've been discarded. 
it's about friendship and, you know, finding another chapter to live in your life and wearing great clothes. And they bring that energy here. And I think there's probably a whole lot of people in the audience who are fans of that, just wanting to see more of the same. And that it delivers. It is a fun movie to watch. Yeah, it is kind of corny, but that's kind of the point. It's also got a little bit of a golden girls energy to it. Also for women, older women with, you know, fun jokes, great clothes and interesting situations. And how can it not be moving to watch what basically ends up as a game where you're rooting for Tom Brady? Everything's baked in. You know exactly what's going to happen. There really are no surprises. But there are some fun things about it. Like Rita Moreno's character is like a gambling shark. You just don't see it coming. Some of those surprises I thought were just really wonderful. And, you know, it's visual potato chips. It's not. Well, let, me, let me ask world. you to let me ask you to summarize the plot, because I could do that. But I'd, every other sentence I'd say, oh, brother, or give me a break or this or that. <laughs> so, so but again, to, before I, I hand it back to you on, on that score, the fact that, yeah, these are four veteran actresses and, and they've had careers like mm-hmm. on parallel tracks and, you know, sometimes have worked together. You're absolutely right there. That one TV show people would appreciate. But in the cases where even where they work together. It's as if they had, you know what I'm getting at? They really mm-hmm. have the pleasure of their company. They sit around together and swap stories and this and that as if they'd grown up on screen together. But let me turn it back to you because we haven't really like at this point, to the extent there's a plot, we haven't like fully summarized it here. And then after you summarize the plot, then I'll say, oh brother, but go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's very simple. It's, it's for older women who go on this, you know, it's not really a road trip, but I mean, it kind of is. They all decide they're going to go to the Super Bowl. Lily Tomlin's character has is a cancer survivor. She's feeling like, you know, there's no time like now. We should just do it. The other characters are in different places in their lives as women getting older. Sally Field is married to a man who's, who's very needy. And Jane Fonda's character is always jumping into relationships too soon. And one of the things, by the way, that was fun about the movie was the press junket that these women did because it's Jane Fonda and Rita Moreno and Sally Field all being interviewed. And they're asking Jane Fonda, you know, do you think it's hard for people to make friends, you know, later in life? Because these women in the movie have been friends, you know, for a very long time. And she says, oh, you know, you just have to force yourself on people. <laughs> and and the two women next to her are like, yeah, that's how she is. She's relentless. And both of them are like, and I don't even like people. So like, yeah, I don't like people either. Very, very funny, but very true. It does get to the heart of something, which is how lucky you would have to be to be in your 80s and still have those three friends. So that's one of the things that's being sort of low-key celebrated. So you can know brother if you want, but I think that had a lot of resonance for people in the audience. Well, well, the re- the that, that's an amazing was, uh, thing. The reason I, I wanted the plot summary was, and what I would add to it is, and without going into great detail, how they get the tickets then how they lose the tickets or almost losing this. There are a lot of plot contrivances here. So when I talk about cornball humor, a lot of it involves like how they actually acquired the tickets, you know, winning them on a radio show. But then once they get to the Super Bowl, how they lose or think they might be losing the tickets, this and that, how they get into the Super Bowl. And without spoiling anything, where the story goes from there, that really is cornball humor a lot. And that's where at that point, and now at this point, I'll say, oh, brother, <laughs> you have to go. I'll be polite and say you have to go with the flow. You have to put any logical reservations to the side there. This is all about a kind of wish fulfillment. And it, yes, it is, it is touching to have. That's why I kept saying, you know, these these are careers that have intersected at times 
for these actresses, but even when they haven't, what I keep calling parallel tracks, they've been working in, in film and television all these decades, how nice to have them in the same room, right? And so that carries me through the film, but then in terms of the mechanics of the plot, it really is thin at times. And where it gets like incredibly thin is there'll be a plot contrivance that frankly, I don't quite buy. I'm being this, this stern, logical person, like, oh, that, that wouldn't happen kind of thing. And there'll be a scene where they're just walking across a parking lot. And now if you've had my response, after about 25 seconds of them walking across the parking lot, I'm thinking, oh, come on, you know. So that's what I'm getting at there. That's where the film started to wear on me a bit, where I, where I just thought it was just pushing. And much as I love all, all four of these actresses, I thought that it was really kind of wearing thin at, at a point like that. Um, I thought the movie had some wonderful moments of humor. Like I love that Guy Fieri has a role in this. And there's this hysterical moment where Rita Moreno has taken a edible. And so she's high, you know, incredibly high. And she walks into a poker game and everybody around the table is Guy Fieri. It's, I thought it was just such a funny sight gag. And I loved his, you know, ability to have a small role in this movie. I thought that was a genius. And also it was wonderful to see Sarah Gilbert in a small role as, you know, the daughter of Lily Tomlin. And, you know, if you don't know who Sarah Gilbert is, she was Darlene on Roseanne. So again, it's that moment of the recognition. I know that person. I like their association with this movie. I think it really hit a lot of notes that people wanted to, they went to the movie for. Well, see, Marie, that's where a film like this is quite generous and accommodating. What I mean by that is the cameos. There are some real-life football players who pop up, not just Tom Brady. There are some actors we know from other roles and so on. And this is the kind of movie that allows for that. It can just happen. In some movies, it would be like, whoa, what's she doing there? You know, whatever. But in this movie, it's like, well, why not? You know, why not have so-and-so? And once you get to like the, the Super Bowl or something, you know, anything could happen. Who might be in the booth? Who might be on the field? Whatever. And at, at that point, I had to smile, too. It's just like, you know, I, I was anticipating some of them even like, well, who's going to pop up next? And so there's some pleasure in that as well. I, I acknowledge that. Reluctantly, I acknowledge that. <laughs> I also saw it before the Super Bowl, which I thought the timing of the release of the movie was also really key because it gives you the sense of, oh, right, because I'm not a big football fan. This is something that's a cultural phenomenon. Lots of people are obviously lots of people are interested in the Super Bowl, but I'm not savvy enough to know how much actual footage they used. It looked like it was a lot from you know, real I, games, I wanna, right? I want to learn more about that. Watching the film, I wasn't always sure, honestly. Some of it looked like it was staged for the camera here. Other footage looked real genuine. And I, I need to read about that more. And to the credit of the film, it does a really good job of placing you there. You really feel like you're watching the Super Bowl. How much of it's the actual Super Bowl, I can't say for sure, scene by scene. And that's another aspect of the film that actually surprised and impressed me in a way I didn't expect to be, because it really does put you in that environment. But then once it cuts from the field and, and that deft use of the on-field action, once it goes up to like the uh, sports casting booth or up to the owner's suite, whatever, then it's like such hokum that it's like total artifice, right? Like, oh, come on, they wouldn't get in that room. They wouldn't be allowed here or there, all that kind of, all those reservations. So that's a kind of curious irony with this film is that it's very, very convincing for the on-the-field action and the cut-arounds there. But then once it gets off the field to the spectators and all that, it's pure Hollywood hokum at that point. So for me, that's not uh, unbalanced, not very balanced, not very satisfying. But in the moments where they're in the game, I felt like I really was in the game. The release of the film, on the one hand, was highly topical. I saw it just a week or so before the Super Bowl. And here's Tom Brady and all. But then within the film, I mean, how do you stay on top of events? They ask him if he's going to, you know, retire. And so as to where Tom Brady was in his career, you know, at that point in the, in the film, he's still determined to play football and so on. And of course, 
you know, now as we watch the film, we realize, well, he's, he's made his latest retirement announcement, okay? So who knows, if this movie has a sequel, who knows where he'll be in his career at that point? He might be in a broadcast booth, but knowing Tom Brady, maybe he'll be down in the field as like the first, you know, 50-year-old quarterback. I don't know. Well, it is nice that the real Tom Brady appears in it, and, and I think he does a fine job with the, with the role he's given, because he does not outshine the actresses who you're really there to watch. Well, Marie, the crucial point is he gives himself the role. He's a producer of the film. <laughs> this is this is Tom Brady as he wants to be seen on the field. No, it's interesting what somebody else might have done with him. But yes, it's a favorable depiction of Tom Brady. But all adjusting aside on it, he's really quite good as himself. I mean, he really fits into it quite naturally. And he doesn't hog the spotlight. I like that about the film, actually. He's there and he's a superstar, but he's not a superstar compared to these actresses. They really have the ripest moments. I mean, they're the most fun to watch. He just gets to be himself, which is enough. So that brings us to our second movie, which is Magic Mike's Last Dance. And of course, this is the third in the franchise with Channing Tatum playing this male stripper. And apparently... Originally, Tandy Newton was going to be the woman he meets who convinces him to do, you know, one last show. This has all the markings of a Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland movie where let's put on a show. And, you know, all the momentum is about let's go through the casting. Let's figure out what we're going to do with the venue. There's a problem with the historical society wanting to shut it down. There's going to be one show only. We're going to try to get away with it. It has all of these tropes from other movies. But let's start off with Mike. How did you like Magic Mike? I wish the movie had momentum. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I find lacking. Now, when the first movie came out in 2012, I liked it. I enjoyed it. It was kind of a surprise hit, if you will. People weren't expecting all that much, but, but it did really well. The sequel, which came out in 2015, is what I call an unnecessary sequel, it really fell flat, the need for it. And so this uh, third one, the, uh, the the trilogy now, The Last Dance, I hope it's The Last Dance. I think what hurts this film so much is it's a really weak script. It's such a flimsy script. It just, it falls apart from the get-go in terms of, of, of the storyline. Channing Tatum's character here, because, you know, we've had quite some years go by, but Channing Tatum's character is, is a bartender at the beginning. He's put his dance career behind him, basically. But he meets a, a very wealthy woman with some definite ideas in terms of show business, played by Salma Hayek Pinal. And I've got to say, I, I met Salma Hayek once. She is wonderfully open and endearing and such, an, uh, such a vibrant personality. I love watching her on screen. I mean, it was sweet to meet her, but I mean, I just love watching her on screen. But I cringe sometimes at things her character had to say or do. So I'll make a distinction there. But anyway, just putting that subjective response aside. Channing Tatum's character is hired by Sama Hayek Pinault's character, and she uh, is still married, but she and her husband essentially are almost like exes. They sort of have their separate lives. And so she's hiring him to like leave Miami, get out of the U.S., go to London. There's a really stodgy costume drama on stage in the theater that the, that the husband owns and so on, and she wants to juice it. She wants to revivify it. And, and they decide that, well, let's work in like a strip number, you know, that'll, that'll juice it up. Let's work some of that in. This is a case where it was so ridiculous. I mean, knowing a little bit about theater and how it works and theater productions, where they would actually take this theater production that's been on the boards and is doing well, and they, they would then cancel performances for four weeks so they could work this new material into it. 
and then restage it, whatever. It's like, it's so absurd. It's just ridiculous. And and so much of it actually is, yeah, it sort of goes back to Mickey Rooney and Judy Gordon. Let's put on a show, though. I never saw Mickey Rooney do a strip routine like that, thank goodness. And so, you know, the Channing Tatum character will in effect be the, the stage director for this, but it's so contrived and so hokey and so on. And the fact that her character, the motivations there. Now, I don't want to sound like, like a puritanical observer here, but there are some ethical concerns that are given really light treatment here, just kind of brushed aside. When she's hiring him, it's almost like, is she hiring a male prostitute? I mean, I'm putting it bluntly, but she's really is hiring him. And what, what are his services meant to be? And I'm sounding kind of crude about it, but the film itself puts you there in terms of the story. And then in terms of any ethical consideration, it's the once over lightly treatment of anything like that. And then once it gets into the actual staging of rehearsals and this and that, Again, the audience knows the target demographic. If you want to watch these guys take off their clothes and gyrate on stage, there's a lot of that. So, so you'll be a satisfied customer. On any other level, I, I think it fails miserably. And much as I've admired so much of the, the work of Steven Soderbergh over the years, he really falls down here. Now, he's not only the director, he also, as per usual for him, he's the cinematographer and the editor. This is very much his film. I think, quite bluntly, it's a very lazy film. I think it just coasts what it has there. And, you know, by the time they stage the show, it actually isn't even staged all that well in terms of, you know, cinematically. I just thought this is a really, really incredibly disappointing film. I mean, it, it, it's for me, I just I was so thankful when, it, when I, I kept thinking, well, if it's the last dance, I won't complain too much. Let it be the last and the trilogy here. I disagree with you, Mike, because I thought this movie was fun. I liked all three Magic Mike movies. The plot is not important. And I agree with you, the plot is ridiculous. But you have to have some sort of framework just to get to the point where you can just watch what's going on. Now, I do want to say there's a lot of shirtless men. But other than that, you don't ever see anything. It's not really a it's not really true stripping. It's it's more theater. And they have some amazing dancers. Every one of the people that they cast, one of the fun parts is watching their auditions because Man, can these people dance? And that part is just so fun. Now, when I walked into the theater, the very first row was taken up by a row of little old ladies with white hair. And I loved that they had all come out to see Magic Mike. And that's who the movie is for, little old ladies and me. And by the way, it was a pretty full theater. There were a lot of people there to see it. The dancing is amazing. Channing Tatum is in his 40s now, but I thought he looked great. I thought the opening, there's two scenes where you get to see him dance. One is when he has finished his bartending gig and now he is dancing for Salma Hayek. Incredibly well choreographed, fun to watch scene. Very sexy, but not very revealing in, in the way you might think of a, a strip number. Really well executed. And then later on stage in the production that we you were so aptly described as silly and ridiculous, there's this wonderful water on the stage that they slide around in that I thought was just so clever and well done and fun to watch. Well, in terms of all that water, I thought, well, we're in London. It's going to be raining a lot. <laughs> so, so rather than rather than singing in the rain, it's stripping in the rain, you know, and it, and, and it actually was sort of amusing as, as a production number goes. So I'll, I'll give it some points on that one. And again, as I, I've said, the, the film knows the, the target demographic. It knows the audience that it, it's out to please. But I just think as a film, it's really lazy. It, it really doesn't do anything particularly well, because I was thinking about the staging of the numbers. And yeah, there are some talented performers here in terms of, you know, acro near acrobatic routines, but I didn't think it was particularly well choreographed. You know, I just thought they, they obviously had had the talent professionally, 
but I wanted a stronger hand there in terms of staging individual numbers and giving some, some something resembling a cohesive sense of what is this show now that it's been remounted, this stodgy costume drama and that has these numbers worked in, but it seems like the original show pretty much just dropped away and just as the shirts drop off and, and it's just, it's just gonna be a strip show. And that, even in the audience, it's not even theater seating at that point, it's people at tables, cafe tables and so on. So fair enough, but enough of me is thinking, okay, let's think about theater in terms of how it's produced and how it plays to an audience. So what exactly are they doing here? <laughs> you know, at that point, you just have to go with it. And, and in the very loosest sense, the film is about a kind of, you know, artist and, and, and patron relationship, but, but it doesn't really probe very deeply there. It's just, it's all skimming the surface. And that's, again, why I call it really lazy filmmaking. Well, I'll mention a couple of things that I thought were high points in an otherwise not plot-driven movie. One is there's a moment where Salma Hayek has convinced Channing Tatum to come with her to London. And then she drags him to get fitted for a suit. And there's this hilarious moment where the uh, person she's asking to make him over says, so where's the big teardown? Meaning, you know, whatever Channing Tatum has in his wardrobe is a disaster. It's, it's going to be starting from scratch. That is a popular thing to do in a movie pitched towards women. I think about Pretty Woman, where one of the great scenes is where she finally gets to shop. You get to see her trying all, on all these great outfits. I also like the Zoom meeting that he had with the characters from the last movie, where you get to see them again and they're giving them advice. And, you know, it kind of gives that continuity, gives you a chance to see those folks, but also in a Zoom window. Hilarious. Fabulous. And then I laughed out loud at the fake intermission, which was just a bunch of kittens. I thought there were moments that were like that. That's funny. That's clever. That's it wasn't all bad, Mike. <laughs> I thought it was all bad, but but even like that intermission, it's like the sign goes up intermission, and then like a moment later, it's to the second act, and I thought, well, what's going on here? I mean, I mean, how how is this being staged? And I know I'm being a little bit of a curmudgeon that way, but it just it was so unrealistic in in that respect. That yeah, I guess the only way to take it is is with a laugh. Well, I think that was targeted marketing again, because you know you have Channing Tatum gyrating and you know, looking great with the shirt off. And then you have, oh, good, we get to make them over of that scene that's usually the woman that is being made over. And then kittens. I mean, I think it knew the audience that it was trying to entertain. And I thought it delivered. I thought it was a fun movie to go see. It's true. I'm not the biggest advocate for cinematic kittens. <laughs> I'm not an automatic soft touch for that. So I know what you're getting at there. That in its own way, it knows what it's doing. That's what you're getting at. It, it, it does, in that sense, know what it's doing. And I just don't like what it's doing there. But I'm thankful it's the third and last. Are you hoping for more? I would go see another one. What I, <laughs> what I do think that they did very cleverly was they make it clear that, you know, Channing Tatum is done with that world. He, he doesn't want to do it anymore. He's a furniture designer, actually. That's what he does with his this is a side job, so to speak. So is the bartending. So I think having him have a, a life where he, he can still do it, but now he's sort of the old guard who's training, you know, younger people to do it. So you're right. You don't really get a scene in the movie where all of these very talented people that you saw audition don't actually get to do a big number where you can say, wow, look what a great choreographer uh, Channing Tatum is. I have an idea for the next movie. It would be 80 for Magic Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, it is the same audience because, you know, I think the same people who went to see 80 for Brady went to see Magic Mike. Do you know how well Magic Mike is doing in the theater? Yeah, I, I know the first weekend, it opened very well. So a lot, a lot of the demographic we're describing went to see it. 
Well, they seemed very enthusiastic. There were the people sitting next to me in the back row talked and hooted and hollered throughout the whole movie, which I usually don't like, but it seemed appropriate, you know, almost like what you would experience if you were really in the room where Magic Mike and his friends were doing their thing. It's the strip show version of call and response. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm giving it a recommendation, but you know, but what I will say is when people said, so how was the movie? I said, I think everybody who came to the movie got what they came for. I and agree I'll... with that. I agree <laughs> with that. <laughs> and that does bring us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other episodes at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.